Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Creaseman. And I'm Ira Creaseman. And on this episode, we continue our conversation and maybe even conclude our conversation on, well, the plot of Final Fantasy VII. There will be more to come on the themes and characters and music and gameplay and art and all of that. But getting close to the very end of this thing, folks, when last we left our heroes, a lot was happening. A weapon had just destroyed part of most of Shinra Tower, presumably, and in actuality, in the original story, killing off Rufus Shinra, you know, really just adding to the impending sense of doom with Meteor encroaching even more intensely after our failed attempt to blow it up in space, or Shinra's, rather. Uh, and now we have, of course, several problems, <laughs> but the most immediate of which is that the cannon that was moved, if you recall, from Junin to Midgar, that was fired to destroy the weapon, and the barrier on the North Cave that was keeping us from going down and confronting Sephiroth is reach. It's it's not turning off. It's still charging up with a bunch of energy, even though it's not really supposed to be able to fire. And we don't know how to shut it down. And our spy within Shinra, who we know as Kate Sith, is now feeding us information so that we can try to figure out how to solve this problem. So the scene changes, and we are in uh, the boardroom in Shinra Tower. It's Scarlet and Heidegger and Reeve. Hang on a second, Drew. Why is Reeve here? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why he's involved in these decisions. At the same time, I guess a lot of Shinra is, is sort of falling apart at this point, and uh, whoever is left in board, it's kind of like in Battlestar Galactica when the Secretary of Education becomes the president. It's like, now that Rufus is dead, I guess Reeve has moved up a few steps in the chain of command. There's that line Donna has in the West Wing. Yeah. Well, if everybody at the State of the Union dies, I think I'll move up a few rungs. Yeah, right. Uh, well, uh, and not only that, Reeve is kind of given orders all of a sudden. He's acting like he's in charge. So the purpose of the meeting is, like you said, the gun machine power station aspect of the of Shinra Tower is overloading and neither Heidegger nor Scarlet can stop it. Someone appears to be overloading the entire city, which feels like a slightly wonky translation. And then we cut to Hojo. Hojo's at some kind of a control station and he's he's messing with the controls and he's kind of muttering to himself. He's he's maybe talking to Sephiroth. He says, just you wait. I'll give you all the Mako you want. Psycho. <laughs> dude, dude is uh, maybe more unhinged than we thought. Yeah, or if you're playing the remake at this point, I guess it's exactly as unhinged as, as you might have expected. But yeah, this is where any semblance of humanity that may have been in Hojo is just gone. Just gone. So so it seems to be that Heidegger and Scarlet and Reeve were able to overhear this, or maybe they saw it on some kind of a security monitor, because then Kaya Sith explains that Hojo's meddling will lead to an explosion and that he can't stop it. How would Kaya Sith stop? I mean, I know he works there. Does that mean he's either Heidegger or Scarlet or Reeve? Yeah, you know, again, <laughs> this, is, this is the last <laughs> time we're going to have to do this, right? 
this whole thing, here's what I'll say. I think you could have done almost this exact scene, but with a different crisis earlier in the game. And it didn't have to be revealing to the others. This is just done like almost everything with the Kate Sith plot a bit clunkily. Like, I don't know why they felt like they needed to even have this big reveal about who he truly is, especially because it's not like we've grown attached. It's not like there's been character development for Reeve, like off screen. It's not like we've been getting scenes. Meanwhile, back at he's been here or there, but it's not like you went, Oh yeah. Awesome. Or anything. There's really no, I don't know. And if there were, and I don't think there are too many people at this moment, this reveal really impacted you, but there's enough going on. Right. We just had this big fight with weapon. All these reveals about the truth of holy and that Aerith knew what was going on all the time. Everything about cloud. This doesn't need to be uh, as big and grand a reveal. I imagine the remake, there will still be some time where our characters don't know and then they know. But I don't know that it has to be this sort of build up and such a coy game of like got to be one of those people right like if it ended up being heidegger or something you'd be like what kind of double agent shit is going on right here but that it was right. the only person in shinra who has been presented to us as not a completely terrible person is just kind of like okay and it honestly begs more questions as presented in the story than it answers why didn't re do more was he really threatening and kidnapping marlene why even play that card to begin with and not just tell us from the very beginning that he was going to be our spy on the inside. If he's got some time to get away privately and let us know. So just too many holes in this whole thing. I hope they iron it out. But yeah, Kate Sith is Reeve. <laughs> right, right. So Reeve says to Scarlet and Heidegger, Cloud and the others are on their way. Stay out of their way. And Heidegger's like, I don't remember anybody putting you in charge. You city manager, you. Right. The Peace Preservation Force will defeat the enemy. And I've forgotten some of the Orwellian naming here. Yeah. The president's dead. I'm doing things my way. And Scarlet's like, now I'm going to use the weapon. And then Reeve is arrested <laughs> by Shinra goons. So, excellent. <laughs> the inmates are running the asylum. A ground assault is a no-go. So uh, they parachute into Midgar. And there's this cool cut scene where the high wind goes over the city and they all leap over the railing all of them it's a it's a cool cut scene you get the uh the parachutes come out and uh they land in midgar and kaya sith says let's go underground heidegger is after us that scene by the way i always felt like mirrored in the final fantasy 10 moment when they show up at the wedding and come down off yeah. of the airship and also as much as it was a little bit goofy and funny and i know a lot of people made fun of it the parachuting scene in the remake like what there's no parachuting in Final Fantasy VII. Well, actually. A <laughs> little bit. A little bit here. Yeah. So we go into this underground dungeon thing. Lots of catwalks and ladders and rusted metal walls and vents and pipes and so on. Here we run into Elena, the Turk. Elena's kind of not sure what we're going to do. We know we can't ignore orders. And Reno and Rude come on screen. And Rude says, we're Turks, Elena. We've got work to do. And he was like, yeah, I'm not really up for it, but... And then, you know, the party confronts them. And Elena says, our orders were to seek you out and kill. Our company may be in turmoil, but an order's an order. Which is a very good 
good soldier, I guess. Yeah. Um, I'm not. I don't necessarily mean that as a compliment. I don't know. That's the Nuremberg far. trial thing there too, in order okay. to Yeah, that that's a better way to put it. Because uh, I don't want to be blaming soldiers for yeah orders, right? So you can choose to fight them or not. And I think this is your only opportunity to actually fight Elena, like in a in an RPG combat. Right. And if you choose not to, which I always did, because why have this fight if you don't have to? Rude says, our mission is over, and the Turks scatter. Yeah. So that's, I think that's a better ending for them for the moment. Like, the, for the end of this game, for the end of their story in this game, I think finally coming down on the side of our mission is over and splitting up makes a lot of sense because we already had the moment where they weren't going to pursue Cloud and Wutai because it's our day off. Right. They've already kind of objected to the drop into the plate and then they really object to it in, in Remake. The, these are, like I, I just said a moment ago that I don't want to blame soldiers for the orders they're given. Soldiers, at, at least in uh, fiction like this, typically aren't given a lot of agency. But the Turks tend to have more as these uh, higher-up agents of a sort. Right. And so that they use that agency to then not engage in violence here. Yeah. I'm not sure quite what it says, but it definitely says something. Yeah, and, you know, it speaks to the nuance again of this game. We'll get to this more and more as we wrap up, but Final Fantasy VII is a great big thing with a lot going on in it, right? And that there are these characters that exist who are clearly working for the people we described as the bad guys from the very end, right? And we fought them many, many times throughout the game. And we still are on opposing sides in many, many ways, but that the final conclusion here can be, you know what? Our quarrel is really no longer with you. And like you said, we can reject violence and instead focus on maybe the planet needs to be taken care of right now. Instead, I I love that conclusion. I think it's one of the reasons why the Turks are such beloved characters is because in video games, we really weren't used to, even a lot of times in Hollywood, especially in the 90s, you know, villains or or antagonists or just people on the other side who literally fight our heroes in physical combat all the time. But by the end of the story, you kind of like each one of them individually. Elena, Reno, and Rude, I think especially. And now in the remake, I feel like Sung is, is going to get there <laughs> in a big way. And it's like, what an interesting, what an interesting group of characters. And it's hard to place them even, you know, in the history of uh, the series and fiction. They're just a unique thing that exists. And you got to give it up for the Turks. So a quick sidebar, you can, you can get to the base of Shinra Tower. It's still up, even though it's definitely broken. And you can get into the lobby and you can, uh, K at Sith will run by and say, this isn't the way, but you can go in there and like loot a bunch of items. So that's fun. Yeah. We get out from the underground area onto street level and are immediately confronted by Heidegger and Scarlet in a giant mech. So that must be the weapon Scarlet was so excited for. Yeah. It looks like they do actually hate us more than they hate each other. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> 
And, and the name of this machine, which has to be a translation goof, is the Proud Clod. <laughs> yeah. Right. The Proud Clod. Yeah. So you fight the mech, uh, you beat the mech, you, you climb up the scaffolding, and you find Hojo here at the controls of the gun. And Hojo looks at our party and sees Cloud, and he says, Oh, the failure. Nice. Cloud says, My name is Cloud. Yeah. <laughs> Tell him. So uh, Hojo explains, I saw you as a failed project, but you're the only one who succeeded as a Sephiroth clone. And then he's, he's sort of talking to us, sort of talking to himself, maybe talking to Sephiroth. Some of that all is mixed in here, so I'm, I'm paraphrasing a bit. He says, energy is at 83%. It's taking too, taking too long. My son needs power. What will Sephiroth think when he finds out I'm his father? I offered the woman with my child to Professor Gast's Genova project. When Sephiroth was still in her womb, we took Genova cells... I've injected Genova cells into my own body. Here are the results. <laughs> uh, and then there's a fight. Okay, so a lot of supervillain monologuing there. <laughs> Again, a little bit of clunkiness in the writing. Except that you buy it a little bit more here because he's clearly unhinged. And like you said, he's talking to you. He's talking to himself. He's talking to Sephiroth. He's just saying his evil plan out loud right right <laughs> which is a little bit forced honestly there might have been <laughs> there might have been a cleverer way to get us this information and in fact there's another part of this story that is better done but that said, the reveal here that Ojo is Sephiroth's biological father and that that is sort of the biological explanation, right? Because we never really got that. It never really jived that Sephiroth thought that Genova was his mother, but Genova is an alien from thousands of years ago. So what is he talking about? Right. So there's the full picture. Well, we'll get right. the fuller picture in just a minute, but Ojo is dad injected himself with Genova cells, created baby. We'll get to the woman part in a minute, for those of you who know how that works. <laughs> the chemistry needed in order to produce child. But also, ew. Yeah. The, and it gets worse. Yeah, we, we will have a flashback scene in here in a bit, and then we'll just sort of lay out, so here's what happened. But that's what we got for the moment. So we stop Hojo. Uh, you know, we, we fight him. This is the last fight with Hojo. Uh, we stop the gun. Midgar's not going to blow up for right now. So we're back on the airship. And Cloud says, what are we fighting for? For me, this is a personal feud. I want to beat Sephiroth and settle my past. Saving the planet just happens to be part of that. I think we're all fighting for ourselves and that someone. Whatever it is that's important to us. Barrett says, I was the one who blew up that Mako reactor. Looking back, I can see that it wasn't the right way to do things. A lot of innocent bystanders suffered. At first, it was revenge against Shinra for attacking my town. Now I'm fighting for Marlene. And Cloud says, all of you, get off the ship and find your reason. I want you to make sure. Then I want you to come back. And I, I kind of like this. I kind of... 
I, at the end of Final Fantasy VI, everyone gives their yeah. thesis for why they fight, right? And this is Cloud sort of giving everybody the opportunity to figure out what their thesis is. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a beautiful moment and shows you know Cloud thinking entirely about other people. It's funny because he first admits he starts with it's a personal feud, it's me versus Sephiroth, and right now that's what I'm doing. But then he looks at the team that got him here and he says, I understand now that I'm not the broken thing that I was before, that I need to be there to allow you guys to have your space to do what you need to do. It's just such a beautiful moment for all of them involved, but one of the best showings of Cloud growing up as a person. Speaking of showing of character, Sid responds with, Maybe ain't none of us will come back. Meteor's going to kill us all anyway. Let's just forget any useless struggling. <laughs> Thanks, Sid. Maybe. Maybe. I'll, I like the crusty Sids. Yeah. And you know what? That's a fair point, yeah. right? If Meteor's going to fall in a few days anyway, maybe what we should really be doing is spending that time with, you know, the, the people we like to share tea with. There's that movie with Steve Carell and Kira Knightley that's just beautiful. It's really, really funny, and then it's really sad. But it's it's about that. It's about how people would spend, you know, they know the world's about to blow up. So you just, you know, you spend that time. And so, yeah, that's actually a beautiful sentiment. And it may seem like, Sid, what are you doing? Well, we're in an RPG. We know we have to save the world or whatever. But, you know, it's not necessarily just giving up to say, hey, let's take some time and just ride it out. Everyone leaves except for Cloud and Tifa. And Tifa says, did you forget? I'm all alone. I don't have anywhere to go. I would actually like to take a minute here to speculate a bit. If we were, you know, making this HBO show, would you want a series of vignettes of what everyone else is doing? Yes. Did so I answer where, too fast? <laughs> where does Barrett go? Right. I mean, presumably Barrett would find a way to sneak back in and, and see Marlene and, right. and prepare for the final battle, but see her again. Um, maybe thank Elmira for right. all of that. Maybe uh, get them out of Midgar and to a town within walking distance. What about Red? A little obvious, I guess, but presumably back to Cosmo Canyon to speak with grandpa and we go talk to dad a little bit out by the statue have another closure moment there and you know we had talked about how with the tears dropping if he's still in there can he hear him can he go and sit and talk to seto for a little while and explain what they're about to try to go do that could be another beautiful heart-wrenching scene yeah these are probably all going to be sad yeah uh sid Back to Rocket Town uh, with Shara. And actually, Sid needs this more than any of them. Yes. Right? Sid needs the, the I, I said the thank you was great when we talked, or the, yeah, thank you, I'm sorry, whatever. He, he needs a full mea culpa to go back and say, you were right, I was wrong, how I have treated you over the years it has not been okay. I'm so sorry. And... We're going off to do this thing, whether we fail or succeed, whether this is the end of the world or just the end of my life. I want you to know 
You mean the absolute world to me, and you always have, and I'm so sorry. If it were me directing this scene, he would be saying all of those things while making her tea. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And he's making her tea. That's right. She's sitting there with her arms folded. <laughs> and she doesn't have to say anything because she does not owe him the opportunity to apologize. Huh? But given how kind she has been, my guess is she would be the kind of person who would accept an apology. Yeah. And if you take Advent Children as canon, Sid does name the next airship after her. <laughs> okay. Uh, Kit Sith. The, I mean, the robot <laughs> cat doll leaves. Just goes and sits in a closet somewhere. I don't know. Yeah. What the cat yeah. does when it's not being... I don't know. Well, and, and Reeve is in prison. Right. And we still don't know how connected they are. Yeah, I don't know. What if we got... Maybe, again, that could be some kind of final clarification and we got some sort of classic Game of Thrones jail scene where Kate Sith's on one side and comes into Reeve's jail cell and there actually is some difference between the magical version he doesn't always have full control maybe he just controls the toy and the cat is actually somehow a sentient being on his own because we've talked about this he can't control it the whole time this final scene needs to happen to give us clarification on all that yeah yeah that would that would be the big reveal of the connection between the two right all right uh Yuffie Back to Wu-Tai. Yeah. You know, as much as it, she was never a, a warrior for her hometown, and as much as she didn't want to be a pawn in a political struggle between two ideologies, neither of which she belongs to, you know, I think family is still important. Or you could go the other way and have her, since we've had so many of these be sad and, and heartfelt or whatever, you could have her thing be like some sort of adventurous globe trekking thing where she just goes and tries to steal the best materia out there to help in the battle. <laughs> <laughs> I'm stealing for the sake of the world. It's for a good cause. What about Vincent? I think... Vincent's scene here should be, instead of it just being, we're going to get to his optional scene in just a minute, that's what all of this should be, is him going somewhere and thinking about and remembering his past. Maybe he goes on his own, and the party doesn't really need to be involved sure. in the scene with Lucrezia. It's just his own thing. Yeah, that'd be an interesting way to do it. Just have him there and none of the rest of the party. Yeah. Okay. And we'll get to what that scene is here in a second. Everyone else is gone. It's just Cloud and Tifa, and she says, I'm all alone. I don't have anywhere to go. So the two of them, uh, you know, the airship is sort of docked here, and they go outside, and they're they're sitting on the ground, and Tifa's in the foreground looking away, and Cloud's sort of back away, mostly not looking at Tifa. And the scene can be different depending on Cloud's relationship with Tifa, depending on what you have done to, right. to make the uh, relationship what it is. So, Tifa says, do you think they'll come back? It's all right if no one comes back, as long as we're together. 
With you by my side, I'll never give up, no matter how bad it gets. No matter how close we are now. We were far apart before, but when we were in the life stream, surrounded by all those screams of anguish, I thought I heard your voice. You probably don't remember, but I heard you calling my name. Cloud says, yeah, I heard you calling to me. You were calling me back from the consciousness in the live stream. After all, I promised that if anything ever happened to you, I'd come help. We're getting very contemplative here. Tifa says, Cloud, do you think the stars can hear us? Do you think they, they see how hard we're fighting for them? He says, I don't know, but whether they can or not, we still have to do what we can and believe in ourselves. Someday we'll find the answer. That's what I learned from you when I was in the live stream. And I think this is nice because a moment ago, it was personal. Now, we're fighting for the stars. Yeah. And a more implicit each other, right? This understanding that he calls back, I I said I would come save you, while describing exactly how she came and saved him. He came to a a town and and fought with a bad guy like he was supposed to. She went inside of his very soul and rescued him. And that people can do that for each other is the exact argument that Final Fantasy VII is making for why maybe the human race should get to exist. It's not just personal anymore. It's part of the stars. We're all a part of each other. And Cloud is like, Cloud and Tifa are, are getting in that moment and experiencing it with each other on a very deep level. Cloud says, Tifa, there were so many things I wanted to say to you. But now that we're together like this, I don't know what to say. I guess nothing's changed at all. Funny, isn't it? And Tifa says, Cloud, words aren't the only thing that tell people what you're thinking. And it fades to black. Now it's time for the question. Yeah. The only yeah. question that anyone's listened to any episode of the show waiting to hear. You know, quite frankly, I think it's none of our business. Fair enough. I like that answer. I I like that answer. Do you remember how you interpreted it when we were younger? When I was, yeah. I mean, I was 16 at the time. Yeah. I, I assumed that they had sex. Yeah. And, you know, why not? They're... They have uh, developed feelings for each other over this period. They have explored each other's psyches uh, more deeply than most people will ever have the opportunity. Uh, why, why shouldn't they go ahead and, and share that physically as well? But at the same time, yeah, not, not really any of our business. Yeah, I like that. Because I think, yeah, it is sort of purposefully left open to a little bit of interpretation, though heavily implied, especially with what happens in immediately next but i also think it's really interesting that they chose to play it coy with this one moment we've talked about how one of the recurring themes in final fantasy 7 sort of meta themes is its embrace of adult themes language situations the honeybee inn the swearing there's been more violence and and sex and language than we've been used to in certainly in the first six games on Nintendo systems. And it's interesting that in this moment, they sort of 
took their foot off the gas just a little bit and let it be this subtle thing. And I actually really love that about it. I think that that's was brilliant. Um, and it did of course help spark debate that's still going on to this day. And, you know, unfortunately some of the shipping stuff that can get really ugly in it, but yeah, I think there's no way to interpret this other than they had an intimate night together. However you define the word intimate, whether you're just, even with, if someone just sleeps on your shoulder and you cuddle up with them in the middle of the night and you're together in this moment, like it's so, I guess, to your point, kind of modern Western American society to make this a question of sex or no sex. Right. When the point is it's two people having a moment that's incredibly deep. How they express it is between the two of them. Absolutely. So when dawn comes, uh, Cloud wakes up first. Tiva says, good morning, Cloud. Just a little longer. This day will never come again. So just let me have this moment. (sighs) (laughs) And Cloud says, sure. Maybe the last time we're together. So they get back on the airship and nobody's there. And they're like, well, you know, we we knew they might not come back. Uh, And they, you, you get up onto the bridge and hang on. They all came back. They're all here. They've Hooray. been here all morning. Oh, hang on a minute. They, hey. They've oh. been here all morning. Uh, uh, all morning. Did... So Tifa's reaction to this is like, hang on, did you? Um, And she sort of like blushes and goes and hides in the corner. Yeah. Again, I think the implication here is that whatever went on between the two of them was somehow witnessed by the rest of the team. Which is maybe funny, maybe horrifying. Yeah, maybe. I yeah. <laughs> again, if if it were me, like I'd almost prefer that they they come walking back and see the two of them cuddling. You know, like sure. whatever else may together. have happened. Yeah, whatever else may have happened that night. They yeah, they're just found together, being being sweet. Having and a I think glow. that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Drew. So there are two flashbacks before we get to the end of this story. Which do you want first? Do you want the Nibelheim factory or do you want behind the waterfall? Let's do behind the waterfall since we were just talking about it a minute ago. So there is a lake fed by a waterfall up in the mountains somewhere that you can see for lots of the game. You can't get there until you've got the submarine. And then you go like up river in the submarine or do you go through like an underground River or There's something? all kinds of, and you got to get chocobos. Basically, <laughs> through clever design tactics and, and uh, world design, they've managed to keep it barred off from you until you've got the proper chocobo uh, to get you over there. So you get behind this cave, behind a waterfall. Uh, not an uncommon situation in Final Fantasy. Uh, and there's a woman here. And she says, Vincent. And Vincent says, that voice, can it be? And he flips his cape because he's very dramatic. He's very dramatic. Is it Lucrezia? Uh, And it is. There's a woman here. It's Lucrezia. Um, Is this literally Lucrezia? Is it a ghost? Is it a memory? Yeah, a vision, a ghost, a memory, all those things we've talked about. 
you know, before in the Final Fantasy VI opera and the Mrs. Landingham ghost, like, is she right. just imagining? So is Vincent, but there's more than that because she's going to pass along actual information. So it's not right. Vincent having a memory. So yeah, she's, well, it's just not clear at first, but she's, her essence is there, right? She sort of explains and we get more of this live stream. Yeah. I'm going to get a little conspiracy theory here. We know that she, that Lucrezia has been injected with Genova cells, heavily experimented on. We know that people who have been injected with Genova cells can undergo some amount of shape shifting, can, can look like Sephiroth even when they're not actually Sephiroth. Sure. Why couldn't a clone or, or somebody uh, experimented Ooh. on and injected with take the face, the memories of Lucrezia? Why couldn't this be what Sephiroth said Cloud was? I like that. Yeah, that's interesting. Though this is an awfully helpful one. <laughs> right, right. Or at least far less uh, antagonistic. Yeah. So we're back to uh, Nibelheim. It's always back to Nibelheim. Uh, we see Vincent. Uh, so yeah, so it's basically a shared flashback between Vincent and Lucrezia. Uh, Vincent as a Turk walking around, talking with Lucrezia. There seems to be uh, a certain amount of it, there's not a lot of dialogue. In fact, there might be no dialogue in this part of the flashback. But it's clear that Vincent has a thing for Lucrezia. She kind of has a thing for him. But then she falls for Hojo? Yeah, it's all told very visually. And again, there's expanded stuff that gets into this. But for the original game, it's not made incredibly clear whether or not she actually fell in love with Hojo or whether he kind of stole her away. And so... But it's clear she leaves Vincent to be with Hojo. Right. And Vincent does have a line. If she's happy, I guess I don't mind. Which, first of all, yes, you do. But yeah. also, that's, I mean, that's the appropriate response. If she's really happy with somebody else, then you need to leave it be. We cut to another scene. Vincent says, I'm against it. Why experiment on humans? And Hojo says, she and I are both scientists. And that, Hojo, does not answer the question. <laughs> There, there is a whole list of things that you got to do when you're conducting clinical trials on humans. Right. I mean, I, I think I've mentioned this before, right? But yeah, Henrietta Lacks. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the guy considered the father of gynecology experimenting on uh, black women yeah. uh, without anesthesia Ugh. and and the Tuskegee right. syphilis experiment. Right. Horrifying. But it is interesting that Lucrezia also is a scientist, also interested in this. Maybe the reason she wanted to be with Hojo was because she knew if she had Hojo's baby, she could experiment on the baby, whereas without having to explain to the father of the baby why she wanted to do that. Right. Maybe she didn't want to have that conversation with Vincent. Right. And then it is, it is explained that a child was born to Lucrezia. The child's name was Sephiroth. And then there's a there's an argument between Vincent and Hojo. And Hojo wins that argument by shooting Vincent in the chest. And then he experiments on him. And that's why Vincent is essentially the Universal's monster's shapeshifter. Right, right. Which is kind of a cool power to have, but God, what a way to get it. <laughs> bummer. Yeah, bummer backstory, man. Vincent says, this body is punishment. I wasn't able to stop Gaston Hojo. And Lucrezia. All that I was able to do was watch. Yeah, and it's it's interesting to think about, like, we kind of 
When we have the the uh, the video diaries of Gast and Elfana, it's it's easy to say, oh well, maybe Gast wasn't so bad. But that's after this, and right here, it's Gast and Hojo and Lucrezia, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, none of them are are innocent from any of this. It's basically, all of this is all of their fault. Uh, even if at some point along the way, maybe Gast and Lucrezia went, hey, maybe this isn't so much, and Hojo went whatever and went on further, but. They, that doesn't absolve them of responsibility. And so it's interesting to note that Sephiroth is the child of Hojo and Lucrezia and genetic experimentation, and Aerith is the daughter of Ilfana and Gast and just a deep generational connection to the Earth. She's essentially the geomancer right. of, this, of this story. So Lucrezia says, I wanted to disappear. I couldn't be with anyone. I wanted to die, but the Genova cells inside my body wouldn't let me. So that's the explanation. Yeah. Lately, I dream a lot of Sephiroth. My dear, dear child, I never got to hold him. You can't call me his mother. That's my sin. One of. <laughs> she says, Vincent, won't you please tell me if Sephiroth is alive? I heard that he died five years ago, but I see him in my dreams so often. So she's probably under that Sephiroth Genova reunion dream state thing influence. calling to her, yeah. I, I like that you said that Vincent could do this on his own because the whole party's here, right? You Cloud and Vincent and whomever else you bring. And Cloud's about to say something, but Vincent's like he holds out a hand. Yeah. <laughs> like, come on, Cloud, you really want to get in on this? Yeah. Uh so I like that idea that maybe Vincent comes alone. Yeah. So Vincent says, Lucrezia Sephiroth is dead. And it fades to black. I like that for a lot of reasons. One, he's presumed to be in this world, right? And it's just what people have been saying for a long time. Yeah, five years ago. Two, it almost feels like more of a sympathetic release to the mother to say he's dead and not he's responsible perhaps for the destruction of all humanity. So do we want to have some sympathy on her and make it not her fault? No, but I don't think you've got to punish the mother with the sins of the child entirely. Yeah. You know, especially when there's nothing her disembodied self can do about it at this point. Right. But three, there's also a way to interpret this as just a badass, like way above action superhero line of we are going to kill him. Right. He is already dead. Like, He's, he's jumping to the next step. Because another thing he could have said was, you know, it could have been, if it was a bad action movie from the 90s, it would have been like, he's alive, but not for long, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like Vincent is kind of saying that here, but in a much more badass way. Like, no, he's done. Yeah, there's there's something to that. Uh, Nibelheim flashback number seventy-two. Right, right here we are back in back in Nibelheim. How it really happened, probably again. 
So we're in the laboratory, that same laboratory that we've seen a dozen times so far, the one where uh, Sephiroth, it's also the library, right? And where Sephiroth had his break reading the notes. Uh, and Zack and Cloud are in a couple of pods, not unlike the pods that we found monsters in early on. And the Magitech stuff from Six again. It's like the yeah. that room, right? You're stuck in the bad science pod. <laughs> Ugh. Cloud's in his Shinra outfit, so I think this must be just after the fight with Sephiroth. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that must be like a, you know, how many models of these characters can we make, though? Because my guess is in the bad science pod of goo, you would probably not be wearing a lot of clothes, if any. Right. So uh, a guy comes in with food, and Zack busts out of his pod, breaks that glass open and knocks that dude out so uh whatever else is going on zach's still in pretty good shape and he gets cloud out and cloud's in really bad shape it's it's much like he was uh after the mako poisoning in the wheelchair he can't really move on his own his head's kind of lolling around and zach half carries cloud out of town yeah and it fades to black and then there are tripping birds and zach says here put this on it smells a little, but don't complain. Not that Cloud's been saying anything. <laughs> when it, when we get a scene again, it's Zack and Cloud in the back of a rusted old pickup. And I have not gotten to play the Yuffie chapter of Final Fantasy VII Remake yet, but I because the internet exists, I have happened upon that scene. I don't know how spoilery... With the pickup? Yeah. 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 So this they kind of parallel each other, which yeah. is nice. And it's also kind of like this old rusted out truck. And as I was watching this scene, I was reminded of, you know, there are some nice vehicles in Midgar, right? And then like there was the one truck in town in Nibelheim. Yeah. But also in Final Fantasy 15, we're driving around in the Regalia. Yeah. Beautiful royal car. And all the other vehicles outside of Insomnia look like they're from 40 years ago. Right. Because they can't get parts out of out of the capital, right? And I thought that was really interesting. So Zach says, "Hey, old guy, are we at Midgar yet?" And the driver says, "Shut your trap! You're lucky I even gave you a ride." <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Okay. Shut your trap, Zach. So Zach is like hyper. Dude's doing squats. Yeah. He's running all around the back of the truck. Yeah. Uh, he's just got all kinds of energy. He's like, "What are you gonna do? What are you gonna do once we get back to Midgar?" Cloud does not respond because lying there he's still <laughs> comatose. Zach too. just Zach needs to talk. Yeah, and and Cloud is sitting there. So Zach says, "I know what I'm going to do. I know a place I can crash for a while." Oh no! Wait, her mother lives there too. Guess that's out. Yeah, mm. I got to change my plans. Mm. So, oh, twist the knife in my heart. Yeah, planning to crash at Eris' place, but I got to change my plans. No matter what I do, I need some money first. Hey, you want to start a business, Cloud? What could we do? Think there's anything I'd be good at? Hey, old guy, what do you think I'd be good at? <laughs> uh, I was like, why are... Don't drag... What God, why do I'm I give these people a ride? <laughs> but the driver does says, you're still young, ain't you? Young folks, should, uh, young folks should try everything. Go out and look for what you really want, which is good advice. Yeah. So he says, yeah, yeah, you know what? I've got more brains and skills than most other guys. That settles it. I'm going to be a mercenary, and that's that. (laughs) Boring stuff, dangerous stuff, anything for money. I'm going to be rich. Hey, Cloud, what are you going to do? Nah, I'm just kidding. I won't leave you hanging like that. We're friends, right? Mercenaries, you and me. That's what we're going to be. 
Oh, man. True. I know. Ugh. And you know what, man? I'll say this now before we even get to this last part. It hurts so much worse in Crisis Core. Oh, no. It's When you do that, it's it's going to rip you apart, especially this stuff. And, and so much of it does come down to exactly what you're describing here, which is gone into in much more detail in that game, which is that Zack is just a good guy, a really, really good person. And he's full on taking care of Cloud here in every feasible way. And despite everything they've just been through, and it's not made clear in this game, but having looked over the timeline, they had been getting experimented on for years, probably. Yeah, yeah. And it was five years ago that Sephiroth was killed. Yeah. We're about to come up to right before Cloud goes into Midgar. Right. God. So, you know, he's still got this kind of optimistic take on life, and he's preparing him, much like Aerith was, you know, making all of these plans for the future. So, sometime later, much nearer to Midgar, in fact, as we're about to find out, on a sort of cliff face overlooking Midgar, Zack is carrying Cloud up a hill, and they're attacked by Shinra grunts. Uh, you know, Zack turns to, to fight, because he is an RPG hero after all. Sure. Um, but he does eventually fall, and he's lying on the ground. And they come up and they shoot him some more right in the chest as he's lying there. Automatic gunfire. Because I guess if you've been tracking Zack this long, you know not to give him a chance to recover. Yeah. But good lord. There's no music in this scene. There's like maybe the sounds of, I think it's raining. And it happens so abruptly. They just shoot him in the head. And then they walk up again while he's on the ground. They shoot him in the head again. And they walk off. Now, in Crisis Core, there's a little spoiler for that, way more drawn out, much more dramatic, super anime over the top. Still, I think, uh, just a beautiful send-off for the character. And they're polar opposites. Crisis Core makes a huge deal of it. In the original Final Fantasy VII, this was it. It takes maybe eight seconds, seven, maybe. <laughs> Why did I say? <laughs> it? it takes maybe seven seconds for the first round of shots. The second round of shots, Zach is dead. He's just dead, and it's yeah. so alarming. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty abrupt. And they do the thing, you know, what What about this other one? And the officer's like, ah, forget it, just leave him. Because Cloud's a grunt, he's not a soldier. And he's unconscious. If you just leave him there in the rain, presumably he's just going to die on his own. And yet. And yet. Once the uh, Shinra goons leave, Cloud finally regains consciousness, I guess. And he drags himself to Zack, you know, finally showing these signs of life. And he takes Zack's sword, and Midgar is off in the distance. Ugh. So this is like, you know, a few weeks maybe before the, the events that begin the game. Yeah. And so, like you know, like we said, he's been in those tanks for five years. And there are, uh, here's a detail, there are scratches in the tanks that you can find uh, if you go back to the lab. 
uh, and one of them says, feeding time, that's our chance, let's get out of here. So they were able to communicate, or at least Zach was, uh, via scratching the tank. Oh so so they've been experimented on for five years. And now we've got Cloud and, you know, his friend, the guy he looks up to, he's got his sword. Maybe we should address this here. Does Cloud think he is Zack? This is a long and interesting running debate, right? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think the most logical interpretation, but not necessarily the only one. I, I shouldn't say logical. I should say I think the most straightforward interpretation is that in this moment, with Cloud having been unconscious for God knows how long, and with all kinds of Genova cells and horrible things running through him, and him experiencing this trauma right in front of him, that it, his memories and Zach's memories all sort of collide together. And yeah, he starts to not be able to separate the difference between his story and Zach's story. And that's why all of that happened throughout the game, right? He thinks he is Zach, or he very legitimately. And then there's other interpretations, you know, because the Genova cells are in there. Sephiroth's influence is helping him to believe that he is Zach, or, or that he was that first-class soldier who did all of those things that Zach actually did. To me, and I think that's all very, very interesting, but I will just say, ultimately, to me, the mechanics of what happened to Cloud are far less interesting than Cloud as a phenomenally powerful symbol for trauma and post-traumatic stress and whatever it happens. You know, that it that it happens in such an intense way just gives us that much more emotional depth to feel bad for Cloud and, and Zach and everybody involved. But ultimately, it's a story about a person who was tortured and magically gaslit into believing he was something that he wasn't. And the courage that it takes for him to recover from that and that he needed a friend as good as Tifa to help is really what this story is all about. And so... Wow, though, is it powerfully told, and it's the reason why to this day it still means so much to people, why we care about people, why Zach, even before Crisis Core, Zach was an incredibly popular character, and he's got, what, maybe seven minutes of screen time combined total in the original game, but it's it's just so full and complete, and you care, and what happened to Cloud, I was watching a streamer named Leah XP, and she just said, you didn't deserve any of it, Cloud. Aerith, you, you guys deserved so much better. And if you think of them as real people, that is the correct response. Right, right. Well, and that's part of the power of, of fiction, maybe even more so speculative fiction, is that these are, you know, shitty things happen to good people. Happens all the damn time. And some of it, there's a reason for it, and some of it, there's no reason at all. And how we respond to it, whether or not we can bear up under it, well, sometimes, at least personally, I take some cues from, you know, the philosophy of my fictional heroes. There's a, there's a nice meme, it's not even a meme, there's this sort of philosophy, an internet philosophy that I see every once in a while, that's the, uh, the philosophy of Rogers, and it's, if Steve wouldn't do it and Fred wouldn't do it, then I shouldn't do it either. 
Mm. And I really like that, you know, the, you know, Fred Rogers was a real person. He was Mr. Rogers. But, you know, Steve Rogers, it, there's an ideal there, right? You look up to some of these ideals and we express our ideals in our fiction. And yes, absolutely. As real people in this universe, they deserve so much better. But it is, of course, the story of how they deal with it that is so inspiring. Right. There is one more thing I want to mention before we go down into the northern crater. You can go to Nibelheim in modern times, obviously, to get some of those flashbacks. And one of the things you can do is you can go back to Tifa's room and you can look at the sheet music and there's a note hidden inside. And it's Zangan. And he's, he's written his last note to Tifa and hidden it here in the sheet music uh, where he explains that he made sure that Hojo did not get his hands on Tifa. He got her to a doctor in Midgar, but he doesn't like the city. So that that's what happened the, the night of the attack by Sephiroth. And eventually he comes back to Nibelheim and notices the peculiarness. For one thing, nothing burned down. For another thing, all these actors. And so he leaves her a note in that sheet music and he says, to my most precious student. Uh, and that's how you get her her last limit break, the final heaven. So even though Zangan doesn't have a lot of screen time either, right? It's all in the past. Uh, and who even knows where he is now? You know what, man? Good for you. Yeah, that's that's real hero stuff, man. Those are the little heroes that if he doesn't go in there and get Tifa out of there and get her to Midgar, none of the rest of this can happen. So our heroes are all back on the high wind and you fly over over the northern crater where Sephiroth's body remains. And you go down into it and there's, you know, it's it's a cool dungeon. There's all this greenish light of the of the life stream and there's some floating rocks here and there and the, the earth is shaking uh, and the road splits in two at one point and then it splits in two again. And whoever, you, when you meet up with them again later, they will give you items that you would have gotten on the other path, which is neat. Yeah. And you get all the way down into what uh, they say is the center of the planet, which cannot be the case because that would take much, much longer and will also be very hot and the pressure would be unbearable. But I get what you mean, right? But, but other, other than that, though. Yeah, very impressive visual. One of those things you never forget if you've played it. Again, the, it sort of, I think, even really began that. Because, well, Kafka's Tower and the, the giant trash monument is certainly an impressive thing. Also, we'd seen stuff kind of like it in... You know, we talk, we compared it to Lord of the Rings Tower or whatever, but this is just sort of that completely other world. Even though you're still on the planet, you feel like you're in an alien world or you're in outer space or whatever. You're going down to this crater, and it's just getting weirder and weirder and weirder. It is, well, and that that's sort of become the uh, the norm for Final Fantasy right. in dungeons. Is yeah, reality is. This is not the world you know. Reality is maybe coming apart. It's also interesting to know that a very deep crater is essentially the opposite of a tower. Oh, yeah. Fair enough. So that's fun. All right. So uh, we get all the way down. We're, we're about to have the fight. And Cloud looks at everybody and he says, well, all right, everyone. Let's mosey. Let's mosey. <laughs> and God, I hope they keep it. They got to keep that they for the will. remake. Right? Let's mosey. They've already alluded to it. They have. A, a couple of times even. 
And I think, again, that was recognition of, okay, why, why do people care about this? Why has this lived on? That Cloud, right before the final battle, you were know, just talking about Steve Rogers a minute ago. Steve Rogers would have given a three-minute speech that really got everyone's blood rising. You know, we're going to win because we have to. You know, the, right. that whole thing. And Cloud <laughs> says, let's mosey right before the final battle. Right. And, and Sid says, why you got to say it like a wimp? Can't you say move out or something? Cloud looks, looks away. And he looks back and he says, Move out! (laughs) (laughs) Because Cloud's a goofball. He's been pretending Uh. to be a badass his whole life. He's been wanting Tifa to... He went from wanting Tifa to pay attention to him to wanting anyone to pay attention to him to just wanting to show the world what he could do with his muscles to being a failed soldier to having this horrible thing happen to him with all of these experimentations, not knowing who he is trying to project the image of first-class soldier badass thing and Cloud's just a dude from a town who liked a girl and wanted to be important and wanted people to notice him and he was a failed experiment in a lot of ways and he isn't the chosen one the way that Terra and Galif and Cecil and Bart's and yeah, I mean yeah almost all of them sure. are, are, are chosen ones and Cloud's not he's failed one he's just a guy with a whole bunch of Genova cells coursing through his veins and <laughs> right, right. a bunch of five years power of experimentation right yeah but and yeah it he it's worth remembering that what he wanted from Tifa was to be friends and now well he's got friends <laughs> they, right. they all came back right 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 yeah all right, so we do the Final Fantasy thing where the world sort of falls apart. It's the cloud of darkness in the void. It's pandemonium or, or the time compression or or even just like walking out to meet the Dark King in Mystic Quest against a star-spangled field, right? It's the world is falling apart. And there's this sort of a, a red, almost coral-like rock formation that's holding on to a greenish-white sphere bluish greenish white orb and cloud says a light is this holy is that Eris materia the materia that doesn't do anything yeah so the screen sort of blinks and all the heroes are here and gravity is all fickle and, and Sephiroth is maybe using psionics to grab them with his telekinesis and he's trying to tear them apart with his mind and cloud says it is holy materia it's shining Aerith's prayer is shining. It's not over yet. Uh, and then you get to split your parties into groups, uh, and you're going you're gonna to fight Sephiroth with the various groups. It's kind of a... It sort of depends on how well your fight against the last Genova monster went. That depends on... That determines uh, how, how this fight's going to go. Right. But Cloud gets one last line here. He says, Aerith's memories, our memories. We came to tell you our memories. Come, planet. Show us your answer, and Sephiroth, to the settling of everything. Oh, okay. I forgive all the clunky writing. I forgive any of the parts that were silly and clunky before. Uh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Let's mosey. No kidding. 
speaking of moseying, cue one-winged angel. Sephiroth's <laughs> form here is his torso upon six wings rather than legs. Uh, his left arm is normal, and his right arm is a huge black wing. So really, he's a seven-winged angel, but semantics. <laughs> he's got a couple of halos affixed to his back so that they arc over his head. Uh, it really We talked about Kefka as the god of nihilism and the warriors of light there sort of being tasked with killing a god. Uh, or killing the god, depending on, you know, how you get into your philosophy and metaphor and, and what that means. But here, does Sephiroth fill that role? Is he has he achieved deific power? He wants to be one with the planet and rule everything. I suppose he's on the cusp of being, and he's certainly acting and, and presenting himself as though he already is. You know, with <laughs> the ridiculous over-the-top attack. Supernova, <laughs> just yeah, well, the most extra thing in the world. You know, it, it certainly suggests godlike powers. Yeah, let, let's get into the implications of Supernova a little bit, because what happens is he like starts spouting these mathematical mathematical formulae, and then a meteor streaks from outside the solar system, and it comes through into our solar system and like destroys Pluto, and it goes right through Jupiter and like creates a donut. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's like destroying asteroids and whatnot. All the planets out, one by one. Yeah, yeah. And it labels each planet. So it's like, hang on, these, the, this is our solar system. Right. Is this a reveal that this is our Earth, a version of Earth? Have they all been a version of Earth? Right. Even though they call it Gaia, but it's definitely a Mars and a Venus and all of that stuff. And it's the third one. So you're right. going... Yeah, and then I've heard interpretations that it's actually like pulling all of this energy from an alternate universe that Sephiroth is like destroying an alternate version of our solar system and then harnessing that energy to attack our heroes with. That's pretty wild. I I dig that. I'm not sure that the evidence supports it necessarily, but it doesn't not support it. It's awfully... Galactusian of him. <laughs> right, right, because the meteor then strikes the sun and the sun expands, destroying Mercury and Venus and then just barely touching Earth uh, in order to hit uh, our heroes here. Yeah. That's, and so that's, it's interesting, if nothing else, the, the potential implications, even though none of them are really explored. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I think Sephiroth has definitely achieved god status here i think what was maybe tripping me up a little bit earlier is like kefka is very clearly a god of nihilism right and i think that sephiroth is just a god of this world really until something that he says at the end of advent children again if we're counting that as canon we don't get much of sephiroth's motivations after he feels he was wronged and he just feels like this planet is his to do whatever he wants with he feels like the planet is his birthright and he doesn't really explain what he wants to do with it until Advent Children. But, yeah, it, like Ego, maybe. Like Ego the Living Planet. Like, that's the kind of 
<laughs> God status that Sephiroth is achieving here because it's not clear that he actually even has a particularly nihilistic ideology that his point is to destroy everything in existence or whatever, the way Kefka comes out and says, or the way, I won't say what it is to spoil it, but Seymour Guado in Final Fantasy X gives a very clear thesis of what he's trying to accomplish, kind of similar to Thanos in the MCU. And Sephiroth never really does that in the OG Final Fantasy VII. So you just kind of go, yeah, you know, he... <laughs> it, it's just ultimate power. And, well, we were able to destroy him, so he didn't fully achieve it, I guess. <laughs> Got there just yeah. in time. Absolutely. And and I think it's at least partially because there's more of us than him. And I don't just mean that from like a, a tactical, we can hit him while he's not looking kind of thing. As, you know, as we've talked about before, the the villains in Final Fantasy tend to boil down to a single tyrant. Whereas the heroes are invariably a party. Right. You know, it's it's our togetherness. It's our coming together as a found family that makes us strong. Right. And so, yeah, we do beat him. And, and he sort of starts to disintegrate into the void and the, the background sort of does that swirly thing and pulls him back into it. And I'm forced to wonder if the one-winged angel was even Sephiroth for real because remember all those clones and the Genova cells and everything? Sure. And suddenly we're back on the landing. And Bear says, hang on. What about Holy? What's going to happen to the planet? Klaus says, I don't know. The rest is up to the planet. We did our best. That's it. Let's go home proud. Yeah. Like the end of a of a losing season, right? Right. We did our best. Right. Let's go home proud. Right. And they all start to climb up out of the pit. And there's a flash of light. It's that same sort of flash of light that we get when Cloud's having one of his mental breaks. And Tifa says, what happened? And Cloud says, I can feel it. He's still here. And the, the sort of phantom version of Cloud tumbles away. And here we get one of the most badass just <laughs> cut scenes. Uh, he's he's yeah. traveling through, I don't know, the, the warp field, sure. the life stream. Uh, I'm not even sure what. Is he traveling through like his understanding of Bugenhagen's planetarium? Right. Or, or maybe it's like the warp spell from Final Fantasy V that would take you from one world to another. Right. But eventually he lands. And he's just sort of standing in the cosmos. They do this in Final Fantasy XV too. The last fight between Noctis and Arden is just sort of in the cosmos. Yeah. And Sephiroth, wearing no shirt, looking very handsome. <laughs> uh, it's, the, it's the Sephiroth we've seen in the North Crater, trapped in the, uh, in the life stream. Sort, sort of like an amber crystal life stream, right? And you have a fight. And Omni-Slash, Cloud's last limit break, whether you got it or not, is immediately and only available. And Cloud's ultimate move is basically hit him with his sword as many times as I possibly can. And Sephiroth looks surprised. And there's blood all streaming down his face and his eyes goes wide. I don't know, do you think that Sephiroth didn't expect to lose? Do you think that he, in in every, you know, after everything, he thought he was still going to win this? Yeah. I think he is genuinely surprised 
maybe even a bit like remorseful is the wrong word. It's that classic villain, you know, oh my God, what have I done line of because I think here's my interpretation of this. And one of the reasons why I love this so much is because there are a lot of different interpretations of this. People have written books about this and we've mentioned it before, but not nearly enough. Final fantasy is a masterclass in visual storytelling. You talked about one of the flashbacks earlier, not having a ton of dialogue and they didn't really have great dialogue until, you know, a few games later, sometimes like I will wow at it when they do it well, but so much of this is just done visually. And I always thought, like you mentioned, when you get down there and you see him without his shirt on, and there's been so many visual clues throughout the game, we know now I knew right away. That's the real one. And then if you have been paying really close attention, that's the first time we've actually seen the real Sephiroth. Right. Right the here. Original body. The, that's his body. And the, the body that Lucrezia carried. That never that's got right. to hold. And again, my interpretation is we have just stripped away his godhood. We have we have pulled the one-winged angel off of him. He is not that thing anymore. He is not Sephiroth, eater of worlds and controller of massive clones. And in that moment, he's just a man back like he was before all of this happened. And Cloud confronts him, now fully powerful, now fully realized as a, as a person and as a warrior and as a defender of the planet and stands in front of him and just destroys him. And I, and it just, yeah, because I think, you know, it's like once you've pulled off that, that crown of power, all of that pulled away. I'm not saying I feel bad for Sephiroth. That happened earlier in the story where I felt bad for him, but he is just a, just a man in that moment, just a person. And a person can realize that they've done something wrong. What he had become couldn't even feel that anymore. But I, I think he does. That one look, and it's the only blood we get in the whole game, too. There was no blood in the Aerith scene. That little bit of blood that trickles down his face. Well, there is a little bit of blood early on. It's the trail of blood. Oh, sure. Right. Of course. Of course. But actually coming out of a person, right? So we've right. Got... Right. And... Yeah, just powerful imagery. Again, however you interpret it, to finally see him kind of disintegrate into light there as Cloud puts him away. Whew. So, uh, you know, Cloud's in this nowhere space, and he's looking around, and there's a hand reaching for him. And he reaches for it, and eventually he's back in the real world, I guess. He, he he's comes out of his psionic... Uh, mindscape cosmoness. I will say, while he was still in there, and it was uh, an ambiguous hand, you get a little hint sure. of Aerith's thing. Yes, uh, more than one person is reaching for Cloud. Right. He starts running for her, uh, and the the rocks are falling, and Tifa falls, and he grabs her, and he catches her, and he uh, grabs onto the the shelf uh, on a cliff, and with one arm. Thank you very much. He pulls them both up onto this ledge. Yep. And Cloud says, 
And, and this is a good time for a, a heart-to-heart. He says, I think I'm starting to understand. An answer from the planet. I think I can meet her there. And Tifa says, yeah, let's go meet her. And they get up on the shelf and everybody else is on like on the other side of this pit. Uh, except for Yuffie and Vincent because they are optional characters and I guess you could not right. create three... Four, you would need one for if neither of them is there, one if for Yuffie, one if for Vincent, yeah. one if for both. So I guess that's why, right? Yeah. And Red says, Holy's going to move soon. And Sid says, Lady Luck, don't fail me now. <laughs> and they all look up out of the pit and the cigarette slowly falls from his mouth and the airship is tumbling down into them. It sort of gets wedged in. And we have a brief moment of levity, and that little, that little uh, humorous <laughs> oh, yeah. bit plays, and we get to see the side of the of the airship, and it's a pinup art of some girl. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't think I don't know if she's got a name. I don't. Maybe there's a name under Just, the the art. Yeah. So they they all get onto the ship, I guess, and the sh- get they get it upright somehow, and Holy bursts from the northern crater and throws the airship in the air, and it's the frantic music, and Sid reaches for a lever. And he grabs it, and he pulls it, and the airship transforms, and now it's like a airliner, and it's got these jets, and he goes whoosh. <laughs> Sid's a badass all, engineer. That's right. And they all survive for the moment. For now. And then we zoom in, and I, I think she's in calm here. I think Marlene yeah. is in calm. Because I'm pretty sure it's not Midgar. So, yeah. so like we said, maybe that's what Barrett does. And Marlene says, the flower girl? And she goes open and she opens the window. Uh, and she can, you know, Midgar is not far away and she can see Meteor falling on Midgar. I mean, it's been falling very slowly for a long time, right? And so it's it's coming down upon the city. And it's so very close. And it's bigger than the whole, the whole city. And there are these red tornadoes. And Shinra Tower mostly collapses and the city is being destroyed. But then there's this wash of power from the northern crater. And Meteor, uh, and, and Holy rather, cuts Meteor off and stops those tornadoes, those like sort of almost tenderly, tentacly tornadoes, uh, and just stops it. But Meteor is pushing through. So we're back on the airship, and Barrett says, Wait a damn minute, what's going to happen to Midgar? We can't let that happen. And Barrett, I appreciate your optimism, sir, but I don't know what a gun arm oh, is going to do against let. this giant rock. Let <laughs> was a strong word. Yeah. Sis says, I had everyone take refuge in the slums, but the way things are now. Blech. And Red says, it's too late for Holy. Meteor is approaching the planet. Holy is having the opposite opposite effect. Forget Midgar, we gotta worry about the planet. Sure. And then we get this really gentle musical cue. Yeah. And bits of life stream start coming out of the planet. And they start swirling after, after Meteor, and all the windows in Calm open up, and like everyone now is looking across the way, you know, across the miles and miles to Midgar, where you can see the city and the Meteor, and the life stream of the planet, the collective consciousness of all the souls to have ever lived on this planet, whoever will live on this planet. It reaches out and it counters Meteor, and with Genova gone and Sephiroth gone, the planet itself can now deal with Meteor. And I have to wonder, did the planet decide that humanity was all right after all? 
Well, it's hard to say. <laughs> Isn't it, though? Because <laughs> Final Fantasy VII, this story that almost everyone agrees is phenomenal, even though most of us admit there are parts of it that are super wonky and weird, that has been so important to so many people for so long, ends with this visual shot of Holy and Meteor fighting each other over Midgar. Just a bright energy blast over this enormous metropolis. And then... Yeah, and then... <laughs> we... And then... We get maybe three seconds as fading on top of that image, we get the very first image from this game, which is Aerith Gainsborough praying in or to the life stream. Three notes of her theme. Roll credits. <laughs> and that's the end of the game and the credits roll and we don't know what happened and that so so there's like one more thing to talk about right yeah and everybody who's played the game knows but for a moment you know 1997 you and me sitting in our bedroom downstairs like looking at each other yeah is Aerith telling us in those three notes that everything's going to be alright but what does even alright mean after all of that Right. So we can get into the extra interpretations here in a second when we talk about the post-credit scene. But to your point about the difference between this and Final Fantasy VI, I want to get deeper into this dynamic when we fully wrap up Seven. But I think about this a lot, especially after Game of Thrones ended and was so disappointing to so many people, myself included, with its conclusion. And I feel like with these epic grand stories with so many characters and so many threads and so much going on these are the two blueprints for how to do it right Final Fantasy 6 gives you a postscript on everybody and lets you know and like you said just gives us this very comfortable very satisfying ending where you feel like you can just kind of imagine how everyone would live out their lives and, and feel pretty confident in what that would probably look like. And here, everyone might be dead. <laughs> right. Like, it could be that they're all wiped out. It, it, right. And, you know, and again, we're, we're going back to 1997. We didn't know there was going to be a movie, we did any of this stuff, right? We're, we're just right. sitting in this moment now. And it just ends. To put it, as simply as possible, Final Fantasy VII just kind of ends with no resolution, with no characters have gotten resolution in their arcs, and it's why people don't hate this ending. And some people, I will say, as a, the first time, I didn't love it. When we were little, I was yeah. like, well, again, I kind of wanted that thing that Six gives you. As I got older and, dare I say, slightly more refined tastes about my art, 
if you're gonna leave somebody with a feeling, yeah, God, just like yeah. leaving somebody with complete wonder and not knowing. And you know, I've seen some people. I sent you that article. If I haven't yet, I should send it to you, and I'll, I'll send it out on on Twitter as well about uh, these people who work for Greenpeace in the United Kingdom who cite this game as the reason why they became such environmental activists and their interpretation was that humanity is actually wiped out here and that the planet doesn't allow people to live because we get this post credit scene that I guess we should get to now where right right a much much older red 13 500 years in the future it says is running through the canyons with two young ones. So apparently that has happened somehow. If it was Hojo who told us that he was the last of his species, then Hojo's a liar. Liar. Fair enough. Which we know, yeah. But he sort of gets to the top of of an overlook there and maybe even the exact spot where Zack died and, and handed the buster sword to Cloud. And he looks out over Midgar and lets out a mighty roar as we see the town completely covered in plant life. Right. Right. And that could mean that all of humanity is gone. Or it could mean that we're not going down this path again. You know, p- people left. Right. And, and we decided this was the wrong way to go based upon all the evidence presented to us. Right. So, so yeah, there there are lots of ways to look at that. I like that Nanaki has has some little ones with him. I like that Nanaki is still alive five hundred years later. I think the implication between Nanaki and Aerith, I think the the implication is that humanity gets to live out their lives for a while. I always interpreted it that way too. That at least for a little while, even if it you know did die out for for whatever reason, that it certainly wasn't an immediate thing. And so I never thought that, like, Advent Children, for example, was some sort of retconning of this, like everyone was supposed to have died immediately. That doesn't jive with Nanaki still being alive. If the airship is just obliterated in the next couple of minutes because the whole planet is, Nanaki didn't get out of there alive either. He doesn't got that kind of power. So the party has to live for at least the next couple of days in original telling. And right. so, yeah, I think, you know, I, and I've always preferred, man, it's just because, you know, we're, we root, we root for humanity in this house. Right. So, right. Yeah. That, like you said that Midgar was abandoned, that it was just decided that that whole thing was a symbol of nothingness and that one day Aloy from Horizon can come along and uncover its secrets, but that it needs to be left as a ghost city sure. because it wasn't doing anyone any good. And and possibly more importantly than our party living, uh, you know, the the planet lives. Yes. That's that's what we were, you know, even though Cloud said this is personal, right? They also talked about fighting for the stars. The planet lives. You know, the planet persists. And remember that this planet is made up of the living souls or, or dead souls. The souls, the energy and life force of all of these beings. And so that, yeah. That really is what matters in the end here. And maybe, hey, maybe we did find the promised land. After 
we see Midgar overgrown with plants. We get the Final Fantasy VII title card. Oh. <laughs> and there's the sound of, of children, children laughing. laughing. Yeah. This has been the subject of like uh, like top-end college debate level course like this. The, the children laughing. This is one of those. Um, no, I'm doing it. This is like one of those rosebud moments. The, the children laughing is one of those things that people who really think hard about art beyond just, oh, that was a fun, nice, entertaining experience I just had. That's not, I'll say this, that's not there on accident. It wasn't overlooked. Someone didn't leave on a tape of children laughing and it ended up as the very last sound that you hear kind of out of nowhere before the game just resets itself. Like it's there and, and why? And, and again, I think that's the strongest piece of evidence in the camp of humanity's not totally gone. And I don't think that's very final fantasy. Honestly, I think there will be a new beginning. Even if humanity had to start over that, I could buy much more than humanity's gone, that there's some sort of, reset button and most of humanity was wiped out but there's children laughing yeah it, it's definitely a deliberate artistic choice and i i in the same way that you know the the story almost entirely ends with meteor and holy and the live stream fighting and then it's done that was a choice this is a choice it allows us to Take everything, you know, all the context clues that we've gotten over the last however many hours of playing the game and apply it to this ending and then, you know, all, all the stuff that, all the, all the games and movies that come after. And But I think that is also appropriate. You know, t- take it as a whole. Uh, and, and we will eventually. Yeah. But for now, yeah, what a, what a way. What an ambitious courageous way to end what was at the time and we said this at the very beginning the most expensive game ever made and one that once again square was in a position where they needed this to succeed all of their eggs were in this basket and they told a remarkably convoluted complex story with science fiction and fantasy elements overlapping every which way character twists and turns and false narratives and then they end it almost without resolution or whatever resolution is there is for you to dig into and interpret and think about and I think I also said this at the very beginning when we started this game that we played this when I was in middle school and it was the first time I remember going to school for the next couple of days and thinking about a video game. Not like, I want to get home and play a video game, but like, what was that? What was that? What am I missing here? What do I need to think harder about in life? What do I need to know? What, what dots do I need to connect? I need to see that again. You know, the, the, the very idea of it. So just, my goodness, what an extraordinary ordinary story is Final Fantasy VII.
That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening, and thank you to everyone who's reached out to us. Feel free to let us know what we missed, got wrong, or should have mentioned by following us on Twitter at FFWeeklyPod, or you can send an email to FinalFantasyWeekly at gmail.com. But of course, the best way to get a hold of us is on Patreon at patreon.com slash FFWeekly. And if you're interested in more Final Fantasy talk or Star Wars, Marvel, DC, other video games, even sports, you can check out patreon.com slash DC Productions. Join us next time when we begin our conversation on the incredibly stellar soundtrack of Final Fantasy VII.